What? Amen, and good morning to you all this morning. Uh, I want to thank our choir for such beautiful music, and I also want to thank our guest pianist, Miss Rhonda Reel, for being here this morning with her husband. Miss Reel, uh, you may be familiar with her family indirectly. If you remember the Montgomery's that came and sang a few weeks ago at our homecoming, well, Miss Reel is the mother to Miss Lisa Montgomery Simpson. So thankful to have her with us this morning. And I'm thankful to see all of you all. This is a full house, my word. Uh, how wonderful. Uh, so good to see so many familiar faces and a lot of guests here this morning. And if you're joining with us online, we're thankful that you are with us there as well. Well, if you will please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And while you're turning there, a few quick announcements. Tonight, something special. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, that Sunday night, we dedicate to a time of prayer. But tonight, what I would like to do is this. I would like to prayer walk this entire campus. As you may know, uh, one month from today is Easter Sunday. And as we are coming out of COVID, even though we're still in COVID, uh, last Easter we couldn't all be together. But this Easter, we're going to be able to be together. And I would love to pray for this building. So this is what I'd like to do tonight is we will start in the sanctuary. We will touch every pew. We will pray for those who will be coming into this place. And then we will break up in groups and pray over every classroom, both in this building and the children's building and the fellowship hall. So I would really invite you to come and be a part of that tonight at 6 p.m. Also, as we continue to uh, ramp things back up, our senior adult activities are beginning again. So this coming Tuesday is senior adult bingo at 10 a.m. And then the following Wednesday are senior adult worship. So come out and be a part of that. And parents, as we look to the summer, I know it's hard to think that far ahead, but Infuge for our students is coming up very quickly. And we would love to register your student before March 15th. So that's next week. So if you are interested in sending your student to Infuse to be a part of a, uh, uh, a wonderful opportunity for missions and also very safe, we've been given information from Infuge on how they're going to do it, you can sign up in the back, you can sign up online, or you can see Brother Jason. Jason, wave your hand if you need to see him and uh, let him know that you uh, are a part of that. And speaking of Easter, four weeks from today, we are going to have three services Easter Sunday morning at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 11 a.m. So there's a lot more to be said, and you will see all that coming out this week. So a lot of excellent things. It's been a long time since I've had four announcements to make, and so I'm thankful for that. Well, as we get ready to dive into the Word this morning, I want to share with you a story from Leslie Flynn's book, Great Church Fights. And you're like, well, that's a weird way to start off the uh, uh, service. Well, it'll make sense in just a moment. But from his book, he is, shares the story of a Welsh church that had a church fight. And this is coming straight from their newspaper as they speak about it. With, this was the headline in the newspaper, Hallelujah, Two Jacks in One Pulpit. It was a story of a church that was looking for a new pastor. And let me read to you exactly what happened says this, yesterday the two opposition groups of this particular church both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns and the congregation sang two, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. 
Through it all, the two preachers continue to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two came in and began shouting at the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. The rivals filled out, still arguing. Last night, one of the group called a, quote-unquote, let's be friends meeting. It broke up in an argument. So this can happen in churches, right? And in fact, there's another story of a church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, back in the day, it was going through a contentious fight, and it ultimately wound up with a church split. And through it all, they were involving the courts and lawyers, and then it had to come back to the denomination to settle what was going on. And the church was just fighting with itself, and finally, two churches had to form out of it. Well, one day, the Dallas newspapers figured out what in the world caused this church split, and they reported on it. It turns out that at a dinner one night, a church dinner, one of the elders of the church was served a piece of ham that was smaller than the child beside him, and that started the church split. So why bring all this up? Because it's really, believe it or not, it's the focus that we'll be looking at in the Scripture this morning. If you recall last week, we saw Paul talking to the church at Philippi and saying to them, this is how you become a worthy citizen of heaven. This is how you live your life as a worthy citizen of heaven. And he gave one of the qualifications of that. And one of those qualifications was unity of the church in face of adversity, unity in the midst of adversity. And if you recall last week, I kind of drew it back to the uh, uh, illustration from the, the movie Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team and said that unity was all about that team having to push that sled down uh, the, the, the track and having to jump in together and steer together. And that was unity. And so today, Paul continues that exact same theme, but he's pointing inward to the church itself. And in fact, as we get ready to read here in just a moment, one of the things that throws us off is that we see chapter breaks and verse numbers, and those didn't exist in the original letter. And so what we read last week flows naturally into this week. But as I was thinking about this and preparing for this, I think about the oath that our armed service members take when they become part of the military. They take this oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's really what Paul is saying here when he thinks about our great enemy, Satan. Last week, he was saying a church united protects against a foreign enemy when Satan uses those outside the church to attack the church. But today, he's talking about the church united in itself, inside the church, to guard against our enemy who would come within. And one of the greatest weapons our enemy has is pride. And so Paul is saying to the church, we need to check our pride. So that being said, will you please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4 says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but for also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Mighty Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that we could be gathered in this place on this beautiful day. Father, that we can be gathered online in homes all around the region. Father, I pray that as we see your words, Father, what you gave the Apostle Paul to speak to the church at Philippi and to speak to us today, that, Lord, your spirit would fill us. And, Father, that you would slay in our hearts the dragon of pride. And that, Father, we would be united as a church Father, we would be united not only as this particular church, but, Father, every church across the entire globe right now be united under the banner of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do this because, Father, only you can. Only you can help us get past our own pride. Father, I pray that now you would speak and move me out of the way. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, I pray this in the strong and the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. See, as we approach this text, you'll notice right there at the beginning of this, at the start of verse 2, Paul says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete with everything that he is speaking of this. You can hear in Paul's words that something, something is missing, right? He's saying, make my joy complete by doing this. So if he's asking for that, then his joy is saying it's a little incomplete. But think about the letter thus far as we've read it in its uh, wholeness a few weeks ago. And then, of course, as we've been stepping through chapter one, you hear time and time again, Paul talking about his joy for his beloved church in Philippi and how much he loves them and is overjoyed by their attention and gifts towards him, their care for him and how he sees that they are united against their enemies that are coming against the church. But here in this particular passage... He says, make my joy complete because there is something happening. Maybe something is amiss on the home front. Maybe something's occurring inside the church. And in fact, as we continue to move through this letter of Philippians, you'll hear little nuggets here and there that there is some form of disunity inside the church at Philippi. But he is calling the church to be unified, to live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing in what we're looking at today is this. He's giving an urgent call to live as a humble church. An urgent call to live as a humble church. And that's what I've titled the sermon today. And there's really only two points in the text. But within those two points is much to cover. So the first point is this, the fourfold motivation for a humble church. The fourfold motivation for a humble 
church. See, Paul's appeal to his brothers and sisters at the church of Philippi was their shared relationship with Jesus Christ and how that relationship with Jesus Christ overflows and pours out to everyone around them and how they shared in this relationship with Jesus must also share that relationship one with another. Look at verse 1 as we walk through this. I want you to notice four things that he points out here. The first motivation is this, encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. If then there is any encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement comes from the Greek paraklesis. It's actually the root word of paraclete. I'm sorry, paraclete is the root word of this. And you've heard that word before used with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. Well, this word is a very complex word. It does mean encouragement, but it also means this, a drawing towards. So he says, if there's an encouragement in Jesus, it's Jesus Christ, how he has drawn you towards himself. So what Paul is doing in order to begin speaking about humility in the church is he's wanting the church at Philippi to think back to the moment that Jesus Christ moved in each one of their hearts and drew them unto himself. But not only does this word mean to draw unto Jesus, it means that Jesus also gently urges us to go out and live as he lived. This is the full encouragement of Jesus Christ to pull us to the cross of Christ, to pull us into his wonderful grace, and then also gently urge us to go out and live as he did. And so that's what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi. Remember that time where you were drawn unto Jesus and filled by him, and he has commanded you under his authority to go back out into the world. So this is the first motivation of a humble church, encouragement found in Jesus Christ. The second motivation of a humble church is comfort in godly love. Look at the second part there in verse 1, if any consolation of love. See, from this drawing and sending from Jesus Christ comes an absolute fullness of the unconditional love of God in our life. The service of God through Jesus Christ that pours out into us love in action at the cross pours into our life and so fills us that as we go out from Jesus, that same unconditional love begins to spill out and pour onto others. This is the comfort found in godly love that fills us up and then goes out to all other men. Third motivation is this, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Notice in one again, if any fellowship with the Spirit. This comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is fellowship. And Paul has already praised the church at Philippi for their koinonia, their gospel work, their partnership, their fellowship in the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, you have blessed me, and you walk with me, and you care for me, and you funded me. You are with me in the fellowship of the gospel work. You have an excellent view on foreign missions. But he's saying the same thing. There needs to be a partnership in the Holy Spirit inside the church, being filled with the Holy Spirit and being bound up together in him. 
He says, have this fellowship that is only birthed by the Holy Spirit inside of you. So fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fourth motivation of a humble church is this, the infection and mercy that comes from the love of Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 1, how he finishes the verse, he says, if any affection and mercy. And what's interesting is that is literally translated the bowels of compassion. He's saying through the drawing in and the pushing out of Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit and that great love that wells up, he says it's like it starts in our bowels. And it just fills us and it begins to grow inside of us. And we begin to see all men with the same mercy that Jesus Christ has for us. It is a desire to care for others that builds up in our core and overflows. It is what causes us to see all men as Jesus Christ saw us, unconditional love and mercy pouring out. And this is a result of our relationship with Jesus in him. So what Paul says in this first sentence, there are four if statements. He's saying this, if these qualities exist in your relationship with Christ, then let them exist in your relationship with each other. Let me say it again. If these qualities exist in your relationship with Christ, then let them exist in your relationship with each other. Simply stated, Paul is saying this. You need to work out what God has worked in. You need to work out what God has worked in in your midst. So this is the fourfold motivation of a humble church. Encouragement in Christ, comfort in godly love, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and affection and mercy so that we work out amongst others that which God has been working in us. The second thing I want to point out to you is this. The threefold practices of a humble church. We've already seen the motivation of a humble church found in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the threefold practices of a humble church found in verses two through four. He, in each verse, speaks of one practice. The first is this, unity. Unity. Look again at verse two. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you notice what's so cool about this verse is that this verse mirrors verse 1, where Paul says, if, in verse 1, he answers all those ifs in verse 2. But it's also interesting is if you take a step back and go to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, when he's speaking of being in the world, you're going to hear nearly the exact same language of unity in the face of adversity that he says right here in verse 2. This again, coming back to the illustration I gave last week of Cool Runnings, he said this is the unity, that you are on a team and that you act as one in the same way that you grab that bobsled and that that team must start at the same time and push that sled and that team must jump into the sled at the same time. And that that team must, throughout the entire race, 
steer and turn their bodies in unison and also be fixated on crossing the finish line together. This is exactly what he's saying. The four things that he notes in this is that we are to have the same mind. We are the same mind, that our thoughts are focused on Jesus's thoughts, that our mind should be the same mind as Jesus Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians that we have been given the mind of Jesus. And so all of our thoughts need to be focused in the same direction. We are the same mind. Secondly, he says we are to have the same love, the same love, which means that if, if all of our thoughts are supposed to be focused on Jesus' thoughts, then our hearts must be focused on Christ's heart and moving in the same way. What's really awesome, and we're going to mention it a few times in the sermon today, is verse 5. I so look forward to next week in one of the most beautiful passages written in the New Testament. But verse 5, translated into Japanese and then retranslated into English, says this, let the heart that beats in Christ Jesus beat in me. This is what he's saying, that we are to have the same love. The same heart that beats in Jesus needs to beat in us. And that we would love man as Jesus loves us. So the same mind, the same love, he goes on and says, the same spirit, united in spirit. This is simply stating this, that we are to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of Christ that we are to surrender ourselves to the guidance and direction of Jesus, just like in that bobsled, controlled as one unit by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his anointing in our life. And then lastly, he says we are to have the same purpose. So the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit, and the same purpose. Well, what is the purpose of the church? What is our purpose that we should have? Simply stated, we should have the purpose of Christ's kingdom work. We know this from Scripture. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, church, this is our unified purpose. So unity is a practice of a humble church. The second thing is this. Humility. Humility is the practice of a humble church. Look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. And this is so often where we have an issue. God has granted me great talent, and my talent may supersede other people's talents. How in the world do I see them as greater than me? The same way Jesus Christ, in his humility, gave up his life for us to serve us. There is none greater than Jesus Christ. And yet, the incarnate God of the universe laid down his life for you. This is the absolute guide of humility on earth. Notice in verse 3, he says this, 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This is familiar because in chapter 1, verse 17, you have the exact same phrase, selfish ambition. And there Paul is speaking of preachers who preach the gospel out of selfish ambition. And what he's saying there is those preachers only care about their own glory. Though they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're only doing it for themselves, and as he says, or they're doing it to hurt me. We still see that in today's time. There are a great many preachers that have been in the headlines who have fallen from grace because their sole purpose for being behind the pulpit was to be the rock star. They wanted their glory. And Paul is saying this translates to every last one of us. We have the propensity in all of our hearts for pride to rise up and to say, I am the rock star. And see, Scripture tells us that this is a major danger for the church. James 3.16 speaks into this. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. See, this phrase, selfish ambition and conceit, is translated as selfishness and vainglory. Vainglory, wanting glory for oneself. Paul is telling us unequivocally that there is no room for narcissism in God's church. There's no room for narcissism in God's church. See, when we seek our own glory, we seek to rob God of His glory. That's vain glory, seeking our own glory and robbing God of His glory. But Paul tells us how to combat this, how to combat this dragon of pride. What, look what he says in verse 3. He says, but in humility... Consider others as more important than yourselves. See, we need to adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus as is said in verse 5. And that same attitude is this, as I've already spoken. Jesus came to earth and he saw that our lives were more important than his own, that our relationship with the Father needed to be restored. And so he gave up his life for us, and there are none greater than our master, Jesus Christ. He says we need to serve one another and see others as more important. See, it's interesting. A conductor of an orchestra was asked, what's the hardest position in an orchestra to fill? And his answer was this, second violin. See, see, he said, I have no problems ever feeling first violin. Everyone wants to be first violin. He said, but I have such trouble feeling second violin. And he said, but here's the thing. Without the second violin, there is no harmony in the orchestra. See, that's really where we get our term playing second fiddle, right? And see, we hear that word second fiddle. That's us for us country folk. Not the violin, but the fiddle right? 
Playing second fiddle is always used in a derogatory sense. Hey, you don't need to be playing second fiddle to anybody. Paul is saying, yes, we need to play second fiddle to everyone. Because where the second violin is, there is harmony. How do we do this? How do we see others as greater than ourselves? We can only do this by seeing ourselves for who we really are. And Scripture tells us exactly who we are. First and foremost, we are all sinners. Jesus, speaking of this story in Luke 18, 13, one that you're all familiar with between the Pharisee and the tax collector, says this in 18, 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We need to see ourselves as sinners. We also need to see who we really are. We are all wretches. Romans 7.24, Paul says, What a wretched man am I. We are all sinners and wretched. Praise God. He gave us His glorious Son to deliver us from our sinfulness and our wretchedness. The greatest glory in all of heaven and earth laid down His life by serving us wretches. May we never forget where we have come from. And if we remember what a sinner and a wretch we are, we will see others as greater than ourselves, and we will serve them. So the practices of a humble church are unity, humility. And the third practice is this, courtesy. Courtesy. Look at verse 4. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is courtesy. See, courtesy is a fading concept in our society today. Courtesy is going by the wayside. And if we're not careful, church, every last one of us will be influenced by the culture, and a lack of courtesy will come in the walls of the church. But what is courtesy? Courtesy is simply looking out for the interests of others, having others' interests at the forefront of your mind. See, courtesy is seeking ways to always help someone, holding open a door, helping someone across the street, helping them into their car, looking always for a need and filling that need, setting aside my need in favor of someone else's need. Courtesy is caring about the feelings of others before we ever open our mouth in complaint. We begin to think, how will that affect the heart and mind of the other person? And then we temper our tongue based on living in their shoes. We can see courtesy practice all the time in businesses, right? Especially in restaurants. I think of this, my sweet Eleanor is now a work-a-day work girl. I don't know why she decided that she needed to grow up in like the past two weeks, but now she's, she's driving, she's going to prom, and now she's got a job. But she's now a waitress at the Bridge Restaurant in Indian Trail. So if you ever are hungry, go to the Bridge. You'll see Ella. She'll serve you some ice cream. It'll be wonderful. But see, one of the things is, is in the restaurant business, is if you're a waitress 
and you're waiting on a table, and that customer is rude and a jerk and is just terrible and awful, you can't sit there and go uh, punch them in the throat, right? You go, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'll take care of that as best I can. I'm, I'm so sorry, we'll make sure. Even if you're in the right and they're in the wrong, you care about their feelings. And you, you bend over backwards and you say, uh, let me do what I can to make everything uh, great for you. And here, here's a free meal, right? See, what you really want to do is be like, you jerk, I'm going to get you, right? But see, a courteous person begins to look at the other individual past the venom that they may be spewing to say, what's going on in their life? See, you may never know an individual that sits down in a restaurant what just happened to them, that their wife may be in the hospital, that they've just had the worst day of their life at work, that they may be facing financial troubles, that they're dealing with some brokenness in their heart, and this was the last straw for them, and they came and they ate because they needed food. And out of their mouth comes anger and resentment, not for you, but for their situation. And a courteous person says there may be something wrong in their life, and what I'm going to do instead of punching them in the throat is I'm going to love on them like Jesus would love on them because I don't know what's happening in their life. Courtesy is caring for the emotions of others over your own emotions. And courtesy is always seeing ourselves as a helper to others. Courtesy is one of the greatest things found in the church that flows out of the heart of Jesus Christ is to set aside yourself and set aside your interests in favor of the interests of others. Courtesy. These are the three practices of a humble church. Unity, humility, courtesy. And this can only be achieved by verse 5 that we will come to next week. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is the call to adapt, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Then, O oh church, will we be a humble church. So Paul says to the church at Philippi, you are so joyous and giving and united when it comes to outside the walls. O church, be the same inside the walls so that the enemy never has a foothold. When closing and our time of invitation, decision, and consideration, let me offer this. The Greeks, the Romans of that day, the Hellenistic culture, saw humility as the greatest weakness a human could have. They tried to purge a humble heart because they saw glory as the greatest thing, self-glory as what was necessary to get along in life. And yet Jesus Christ sees humility as the great strength in the church and in his people, a great strength. So, O oh church, let me offer this. As we come to a time of prayer, as we come to a time of singing, 
Let us all, every last one of us, myself included, examine our own hearts and ask these questions of ourselves before God. Am I prideful? Am I self-seeking? Is my glory what I want? Do I need to surrender myself today? Is there anything in your life that needs to be held into the holy flame of God's Word and burned away so that you are found humble before Him? And it may very well be here today that there is someone who has never surrendered at all to Jesus Christ. The great pride that the devil has is to say, never go to the cross of Jesus. And it may be that the Lord is working in your heart today. If that's you, we're going to sing in a moment. I'm going to stand in the front here. You come, you come and say, I need to know more about this Jesus. I see myself as a prideful person. And I need the cross of Christ. If you're online, leave a comment, click one of the links and let us know so I can reach out to you. But this is also a time, oh church, where we can pray. And if you desire to join Mint Hill Baptist Church to be unified into this body, now's the time to do that as well. But may we all church, oh church, every last one of us, consider these questions. Is there lingering pride? Am I seeking my own glory? Is there anything I need? to surrender. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word today. Father, I pray in all of our lives a much-needed word as Paul loved the church in Philippi and encouraged them to purge their own pride and to live in unity, humility, and courtesy. Oh, Father, that we would do the same. Lord, your word in the entire New Testament speaks so often of unity. So, Father, is something we strive so hard to achieve. But it can only come through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would move in your people now. And, Father, if there be just one under the sound of my voice who is seeking after your Son, oh, Father, awaken in them a great desire that they would surrender their entire life to Jesus in this moment. Father, do your good work. Father, I pray we not walk away from this place empty, but filled and acting upon what we've heard. Lord, I pray all of this in the strong and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We please stand as we sing.